Hey everyone, welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series of the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rob, one of the editorial fellows this year. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Kevin Wilson, Chief of Guidelines and Documents at the American Thoracic Society and Professor of Pulmonary Allergy, Sleep and Critical Care Medicine at Boston University. He is a co-author of the ATS Clinical Practice Guideline on the Diagnosis and Detection of Sarcoidosis. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. I'm flattered and I'm very appreciative of the invitation. Kevin, I'm glad to have you here today to discuss a somewhat complicated disease that can cause uncertainty amongst patients and physicians alike. But before we get into it, I'm curious as to the process in developing a clinical practice guideline. How does it differ from other ATS document types that are published? So clinical practice guidelines differ from other ATS document types in that only the clinical practice guidelines are allowed to make clinical recommendations. To develop a guideline, once a project is approved, an expert panel is composed, and that panel is diverse in terms of its seniority, the geographical location of the home institution of the participants, for example, a mixture of physicians, nurses, and patients, and also gender, race, and ethnicity. The first step is to pose specific clinical questions the ETS encourages questions that address uncertainties or conflicting opinions in the field. Once the questions have been formulated, a methodology team will then perform a systematic review of the evidence for each question. The systematic review is then presented to the expert panel. The panel discusses the evidence and recommendations are formulated. The recommendations are graded using the grade process to rate the strength of the recommendation and quality of evidence. And finally, the guideline is written, peer-reviewed, and approved by the board of directors before being published. So, Kevin, you mentioned there the quality of the evidence. How would you rate the quality of evidence for this guideline, and how did that affect your overall strategy? The quality of the evidence was very low for each recommendation, although the reason that it was um, low varied from recommendation to recommendation. For example, for the sampling recommendations, the screening recommendations, and also the pulmonary hypertension recommendation, the quality evidence was low because it was informed by uncontrolled case series. There were no randomized trials or controlled observational evidence for those recommendations. In contrast, for the cardiac sarcoidosis recommendations, there did exist accuracy studies, controlled observational studies, and case series. I was surprised to find studies that inform many of the recommendations in the guideline were quite old, decades old, and many of the things that we have learned and do automatically in clinical practice really are not informed by very much empirical data at all. That's interesting. I think it can be said about much of what we do in medicine. So this discussion is even more invaluable for our listeners. So delving into sarcoidosis itself, how would you generally characterize the condition and why are pulmonologists like yourself at the forefront in its diagnosis and management? Well, I would call sarcoidosis a multi-system chronic inflammatory disease, which is characterized by well-formed, non-necrotizing granulomas. The lung is overwhelmingly the organ that's most often involved. Therefore, at least to me, it makes sense that the pulmonologist is at the forefront of both diagnosis and treatment. I think that's a great way to conceptualize sarcoidosis. One of the things I noticed about this document's metrics initially was the worldwide distribution of reader engagement. Have you any insights into why this is the case? Are there differences in the characteristics of sarcoid based on geography? Well, actually, thanks for pointing it out. Until you had sent me the information 
I wasn't fully aware of the worldwide interest. That said, I think you can say that the worldwide interest is based on two things. One, sarcoidosis is a worldwide disease. And also, there's a real paucity of competing guidelines developed by other countries on the topic. Regarding the distribution of sarcoidosis, its prevalence ranges from only about one per 100,000 in East Asia to as many as 11 per 100,000 in Scandinavia. In the United States, it's somewhere in between. It's been estimated to exist in about eight to 10 per 100,000 individuals. Of course, it might be more common than these numbers indicate because many individuals are asymptomatic and may never come to, to medical attention. Within the United States, sarcoidosis is about three times more common among Black Americans than white Americans, and roughly twice as common among females as males. The reasons for these geographical differences really are uncertain. I think the leading thought now is that there may be genetic differences that influence the immune system and therefore the immune response. For example, there have been differences described in the HLA alleles, dendritic cell function, as well as uh, CD4 positive T cell energy. All of these theories, to the best of my knowledge, are currently being investigated. Thanks, Kevin. I noticed that risk of mortality is also different with African-American women at more than twice the risk of matching cohorts. So it's important for us to keep these factors in mind when managing these patients. You mentioned the presence of well-defined non-necrotizing granulomas in sarcoid. Can you describe the approach to the diagnosis of sarcoidosis? Are there other features to be aware of? And what other conditions can mimic this pathological appearance? So confirmation of sarcoidosis really requires tissue sampling that demonstrates non-necrotizing granulomas in a patient with compatible clinical and radiological signs, but also no identifiable alternative cause of such granulomas. Ideally, because it's a multi-system disease, you would like to demonstrate non-necrotizing granulomas in more than one site, but this is often impractical. So we tend to accept histopathological evidence at one site and clinical or radiographic evidence at another site. There are some exceptions. Lofgren syndrome, lupus pernio, and Herford syndrome don't need to be biopsied. Also, it's widely recognized that clinical context doesn't always allow confirmation by sampling, and sometimes we need to make a presumed diagnosis. So for example, a patient may refuse invasive sampling, but that patient has bilateral lymphadenopathy, hypercalcemia, a low 25-hydroxy vitamin D, and a high 125-hydroxy vitamin D. This is an example of a patient in which you might make a presumed diagnosis and initiate treatment. The decision of whether sampling is necessary for a patient with asymptomatic bilateral hyalurlymphadenopathy is particularly controversial, even amongst the guideline panel. It engendered a lot of discussion. The evidence indicates that if such patients undergo lymph node biopsy, 85% will be confirmed to have sarcoidosis, 11% will have non-diagnostic specimens, and 2% will have an alternative diagnosis. Some of the experts were comfortable missing 2% of the alternative diagnosis because they thought that the patients would be followed closely and the correct diagnosis likely made subsequently, whereas other members of the panel were very uncomfortable missing 2% of such alternative diagnoses, particularly because those alternative diagnoses were often treatable like sarcoidosis and lymphoma. When I say that the diagnosis requires no identifiable alternative of such granulomas, I'm referring to the various entities that can cause non-necrotizing granulomas. 
This includes tuberculosis, fungal infection, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, various pneumoconioses, foreign body reactions, drug reactions, also reactions to malignancy, eosinophilic granuloma, and of course, granulomatosis with polyangiitis and bronchocectric granulomatosis. As you can see, there's a lot of possibilities that need to be at least considered and excluded to make a diagnosis of sarcoidosis. So Kevin, sounds like there was some lack of consensus in terms of sampling these patients, but the guideline did recommend not sampling lymph nodes in patients with certain clinical presentations where there was a high clinical suspicion. Our listeners will be familiar with lupus pernio from an image challenge in the journal back in August. But can you tell us more about Lofgren's and Hereford syndrome and why the committee felt comfortable making this recommendation? Sure. So as I mentioned, there are three situations, Lofgren's syndrome, Hereford's, and lupus pernio. So Lofgren's syndrome is the combination of bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy with fever, erythema nodosum, and periarticular arthritis and it doesn't need to be biopsied. Lupus pernia, which you mentioned, is a violaceous or erythematous plaque that's typically found on the face, nose, or cheeks, and it doesn't need to be biopsied. And then Hereford syndrome is the combination of asymptomatic bilateral hyalolymphadenopathy, fever, peritidis, and uveitis, which doesn't need to be biopsied. In such cases, the panel really thought that the final diagnosis of sarcoidosis was so highly probable in these cases and the likelihood of alternative diagnosis so low that the risks, burdens, and cost of sampling were greater than the potential benefits. Interesting. The next clinical question in the guideline discussed the role of endobronchial ultrasound or EBUS where using a bronchoscope, the mediastinal nodes are aspirated via transbronchial needle under real-time ultrasound guidance versus mediastinoscopy, a surgical procedure. Can you tell us more about what recommendation you came to here and why? Sure. I should emphasize that this question was really about whether sampling should be done by EBUS or bronchoscopy, and it was not about whether sampling should be performed. In other words, the pertinent population for this question are patients with suspected sarcoidosis in whom it has already been determined that sampling is indicated. Our systematic review of the evidence found no studies that directly compared EBUS to mediastinoscopy. Instead, what we found were case reports that indicated that EBUS guide sampling had a diagnostic yield of about 87% with a complication rate less than 1%, while mediastinoscopy had a diagnostic yield of 98%. Interestingly, the mediastinoscopy studies were quite old, decades old, and typically didn't report complications at that time. Given the absence of data about complications in mediastinoscopy, we went to indirect evidence. And specifically, we looked at evidence from mediastinal staging of lung cancer by mediastinoscopy. And that found that there was a higher complication rate for mediastinoscopy than for EBUS-guided sampling. So it also considered the presumed lower costs of EBUS-guide sampling and the ability to add endobronchial and transbronchial biopsy during EBUS-guide sampling. So on balance, the panel concluded that the balance of desirable and undesirable consequences nowadays really favor EBUS-guide sampling over mediastinoscopy, and they made a weak or a conditional recommendation for EBUS-guided sampling. It's important to understand the implications of the strength of the recommendation, specifically the implications of a conditional or weak recommendation compared to that of a strong recommendation. 
A conditional or weak recommendation indicates that's the right thing to do for most patients, but it might be wrong for a sizable minority of patients, whereas a strong recommendation indicates that's the right course of action for nearly all, say greater than 95% of patients. In other words, a conditional or weak recommendation is essentially saying, slow down, think about it before doing it, whereas a strong recommendation is saying, just do it. We're sure it's the right thing to do. Thanks for that clarification, Kevin. Another important area of guidelines here deals with extrapulmonary disease. I think a lot of our audience will have heard of sarcoid eye disease and that hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil, a treatment for sarcoidosis, can cause eye disease. Can you clear up any confusion people may have about this? Yeah, so Rob, you're correct. Sarcoidosis can cause eye disease and it can affect almost every portion of the eye. Uveitis and retinal involvement are the most worrisome because they're the areas that can lead to blindness. In the course of the guideline, we reviewed 18 case series that enrolled patients with sarcoidosis, both those with and without eye symptoms, and then performed eye exams. And I was really surprised to find, but it reported that roughly one-fourth of patients had an abnormal eye exam. Most of the patients who had an abnormal eye exam did have symptoms. And in 83%, the abnormality was severe enough to warrant systemic or topical steroids. So given the importance of eyesight and the relative harmlessness of an eye exam, the expert panel recommended routine eye exams for patients. Regarding the hydroxychloroquine as a cause of ocular sarcoidosis, I think that this is a misunderstanding. Hydroxychloroquine is a treatment for sarcoidosis, and it can cause the hydroxychloroquine-induced retinopathy. Thus, monitoring for this complication in patients with sarcoid who are being treated with hydroxychloroquine, it's really an added unintended advantage of routine eye exams. Thank you. I think a lot of people will be surprised by the prevalence of sarcoid eye disease in patients with sarcoidosis. Moving to other organ systems, what labs would you advise a generalist to order if they think a patient may have sarcoidosis before referring to a specialist? So I'd order a complete blood count, basic metabolic panel, including calcium, liver function test, and both a 125-hydroxy vitamin D and a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. The purpose of the complete blood count, blood cell count, is to screen for hematologic abnormalities due to bone marrow involvement, the creatinine to screen for renal involvement, and to assess the calcium to screen for altered calcium metabolism. Uh, the purpose of the liver function test is to screen for hepatic sarcoidosis. And then finally, while the guideline recommends vitamin D assessment on a case-by-case basis, such as in the presence of hypercalcemia or to assess for vitamin D replacement, I do tend to get both upfront on most patients because in Boston, where I practice, the need for vitamin D replacement is very common. Plus, I view the 25-hydroxy vitamin D level as a marker of disease activity. Thank you for that, Kevin. So I think in summary, simple laboratory investigations can be useful in detecting extrapulmonary disease, and hypercalcemia is noted to be the commonest cause of sarcoidosis-related renal insufficiency, but tends to be quite responsive to immunosuppressive agents in most cases. The guideline mentioned approximately one quarter of patients will develop a new disease manifestation within three years of baseline testing. So how often should these blood tests be performed if they are initially normal? So you'd be surprised to know how much debate this very question engendered. 
there was no evidence about the frequency of testing. And to be honest with you, I've learned from experience developing guidelines that anytime you put a bunch of experts in a room with no empirical evidence to guide them, debate tends to ensue. Ultimately, however, there was agreement that annual blood testing is reasonable. Great. The guidelines then move on to discuss cardiac sarcoidosis in some detail, given its potential to cause life-threatening arrhythmias and, and can be tricky to diagnose. Can you tell us more about these? The expert can't panel really was quite interested in the cardiac sarcoidosis questions, particularly the question about cardiac MRI versus cardiac PET scanning. I think it was because the evidence base is growing, but based on your question, it does sound like the, the panel's interest came across in the, the guideline. In any event, one of the systematic reviews that we performed was designed to look at screening asymptomatic patients using electrocardiography, um, echocardiography, or ambulatory monitoring. However, in our systematic review, we couldn't identify any studies that exclusively enrolled only asymptomatic patients. We did, however, identify several studies that enrolled both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. And these studies found that electrocardiography, echocardiography, and ambulatory monitoring identified sarcoidosis with sensitivities of only 9, 25, and 50% respectively. So these sensitivities, as you are aware, are substantially poorer than what's optimal for a screening test. Despite this, the expert panel recommended a baseline echocardiogram because the abnormality was associated with future cardiac events. The other systematic review that was performed was designed to look at cardiac MRI, cardiac PET scanning, and transthoracic echocardiography for patients with symptoms that were suggestive of cardiac sarcoidosis. Our systematic review found that for patients with suspected cardiac sarcoidosis, cardiac MRI was abnormal in 27% of the patients. More importantly, the abnormal cardiac MRI was associated with increased overall mortality, cardiac mortality, heart failure, ventricular and atrial arrhythmias, heart block, and pulmonary hypertension. Cardiac PET scans were abnormal in 52% of patients. The abnormal uh, cardiac PET scans were associated with major adverse cardiac events and also a trend towards overall mortality. Ultimately, when considering these systematic reviews, the expert panel favored cardiac MRI because there was more evidence for cardiac MRI. And compared to cardiac PET scanning, it was considered less expensive, more readily available, and less prone to, to false positive results. So Kevin, in summary then, is it a case that if a patient does not have cardiac symptoms, that we recommend no screening. But if there are new cardiac symptoms, then you suggest cardiac testing in that situation. No. So in the absence of any cardiac symptoms, we would recommend electrocardiogram. Okay. And even though the sensitivity is poor, it, abnormal electrocardiograms have been associated with adverse cardiac events. It's cheap and easy to do, and that's the reason underlying the recommendation. I also thought it was interesting that late gadolinium enhancement on cardiac MRI correlated with histopathology in cardiac sarcoid and risk of future events, and that the presence of pulmonary hypertension is also associated with increased mortality. So it's important for physicians to pay particular attention for evidence of this in the reports. I agree with you. So... Treatment of sarcoidosis is probably a full podcast in itself. Do you have any general principles for our listeners on indications for steroids or when you consider DMARD therapy? 
Yeah, I think this is a good question, Rob. As a referral center at Boston University, we unfortunately see a lot of patients who are probably unnecessarily treated and are suffering consequences of the side effects. As an example, a patient with asymptomatic mediastinal lymphadenopathy who's prescribed prednisone, goes on to gain a lot of weight and develops obesity-related dyspnea. And then they're unable to wean off the prednisone because they attribute that dyspnea to the sarcoidosis. It's a very common scenario, and it shows that the treatment should be well thought out. So my approach is similar to that described in the recent European Respiratory Society guidelines. Nearly half of the cases of sarcoidosis are asymptomatic, and they're found incidentally. So for example, they might have chest imaging for another purpose, and mediastinal lymphadenopathy is found. For such patients, I really just follow them closely for the emergence of a clear indication for treatment, but I don't offer treatment initially. In contrast, I initiate treatment for findings due to sarcoidosis that portend a poor prognosis or symptoms due to sarcoidosis that impair the patient's quality of life, the group that I deal with the most, demonstrable interstitial lung disease, pulmonary hypertension, or reduced functional capacity, I initiate treatment. For patients, for example, maybe they just have nodules and a cough, but their quality of life is affected by those symptoms, then we have a shared decision-making discussion and discuss treatment as an option. For patients with cardiac sarcoidosis and a finding that suggests a, a risk of a poor outcome, and these would include things like an advanced age, New York Heart Association functional class three or four, an injection fraction less than 40%, LV enlargement, ventricular tachycardia, elevated troponin or BNP, late gadolinium enhancement, or cardiac inflammation on a PET scan. In those types of patients, I would also initiate treatment. Similarly, for patients with hypercalcemia, ocular sarcoid, symptomatic neurosarcoid, or very burdensome cutaneous sarcoid, I'd initiate treatment in those patients as well. Uh, regarding the agent, I usually begin with prednisone, but at a pretty modest dose of about 20 milligrams once daily. I don't find that 40, 50, 60 milligrams is necessary. I think 20 milligrams is sufficient. Most patients do seem to respond to the prednisone, but a lot of them experience side effects. For patients who have intolerable side effects, have ongoing symptoms despite treatment, or who have recurrent disease after discontinuation of prednisone, at that point, I switched to methotrexate. And then finally, for those who have intolerable side effects, ongoing symptoms, or recurrence after discontinuation of methotrexate, then I go to infliximab. I have to say, in my practice, undesirable side effects from prednisone are so common that it's not unusual for me to go straight to methotrexate after shared decision-making with the patient. I find that a lot of patients have had prednisone at one time or another for a whole wide variety of indications. Many have experienced side effects from that, and they prefer to go straight to methotrexate therapy. Thanks, Kevin. I think that's a really great summary of an expert opinion in the different presentations of sarcoid and their treatment. Just from my own interest, I have seen patients who have quite irritative airway symptoms, like you mentioned, and not much else. Is there any role for inhaled corticosteroids with those patients? So before jumping to, to prednisone, that's usually what I try. I treat them very much like asthma, presumably endobronchial sarcoid, and they have cough, sometimes maybe some wheezing, and I've tried 
inhaled corticosteroids along with albuterol, and it has worked fairly well. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, that was a really insightful discussion into sarcoidosis and guideline formation. Do you have any suggestions for researchers in the field on where the research gaps are and what types of studies the committee would like to see in the future? I think that there's a real need for comparative effectiveness research, comparing one medication to another. There are not a lot of clinical trials comparing treatment to placebo. And without those, there are also not a lot comparing one treatment to another. And to treat patients in an evidence-based fashion, we really need that data. For now, there are ways of getting around it. For example, you can do indirect comparisons in meta-analyses. You can do network meta-analyses. But ultimately, I think what we'd like to see are head-to-head comparisons between the different agents that exist. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Dr. Kevin Wilson for joining us today to discuss this ATS update in sarcoidosis. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at negm.org. Our production team at NEGM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Carl Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEGM education editor, Dr. O.P. Handick. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEGM Resident 360, a product of NEGM Group.